Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. This is Jason Arde and I am with the legendary <laughs> Professor... Shirley Ann Tate, welcome, first Thank and foremost. You. Thank you. Would you like to introduce yourself? Because however I may say it, it's not going to pay testament to how great you actually are. So. <laughs> You've just made me laugh again. Um, I don't know how to... I don't really ever know how to introduce myself, actually, because... Uh... Pioneer, great, <laughs> beautiful, intelligent, <laughs> West Indian... Yeah, well, Jamaican, maybe Jamaican, looking forward to my pension, um, family member of a large family. Um, You're looking forward to your pension? You've got, you got about 40 years until your pension. <laughs> no, right? no, no, no. That's it's the baby face to, link there, it's folks. Going to keep up, keep up. Yeah. See, Jess never looks at my grey hair, everybody that's listening, right? He never, he never pays attention to that. So I think that's all I can say about myself, really, in, like, introduction of myself as a person. Born in Jamaica, two great parents, raised me to think I could do anything, you know, not, not anything illegal, just become any, anybody I wanted to be, as long as I kept it within the boundaries of the law, yeah. I've seen a lot of changes, I think, in the past two decades in the UK. Some good, some not so good, and I don't know what happened with Brexit, because I've been teaching for so long, I thought it wouldn't happen. But anyway, yeah, be disappointed with that. There you go. I suppose in the first instance, um, Shirley, your contribution mm. to... I don't want to situate it and couch it in terms of black British academia. I'm going to say mm. academia full stop, because mm. I feel like that this credits what you've done. Mm. Academia in the UK full stop has been mm. monumental. Thank you. Particularly from the lens of, you know cultural sociology in terms of black identity, politics around gender inequality, Mm. queer studies, Mm. uh, masculinity, different types of human geographies, diaspora, Mm. and the way you've been able to bridge that intercontinentally within the UK, West Indies, South America, Africa. Mm. At what stage did you decide you wanted to be an academic? Because Mm. obviously, you know, you came to the UK from Jamaica in the 70s as a teenager. So at what stage did you think, actually, this is a line of work I could mm. do? I wasn't, I wasn't from a family that brought me up to think I could be an academic, you know. I was to be some kind of professional, but that was unknown at the time. When did I decide to become an academic? I never really decided to become an academic as such. It was a job I saw an ad in the paper, and I thought, oh, I can do that, right? So at the time... I just finished my B.Ed. honors. I spent four years doing that. I was supposed. I wanted to be a teacher of children, but then by the time I got to the end of my my B.Ed. honors course, I, I realized I didn't like teachers very much because they didn't like kids. I didn't want to be in a system that really was very oppressive of black children, especially it made them feel like they couldn't do anything. So I thought, right, I, I can't. I can't do this job. So my first degree was like working part time at Bradford College. And I taught on Caribbean studies, a Caribbean studies course. And I also did some more adult literacy work with black communities and also ran a Saturday school. So 
That is kind of like my introduction into being an academic, right? I did that for a year and I thought, right, I'm just going to go do my master's now. So I applied um, for a scholarship from the ESRC and got it to do my master's. Did my master's at York. And then I decided, right, I just need to earn some money now because I'm fed up with being broke. <laughs> I went from there to Leeds City Council to be in the Equal Opportunities Unit there. So, you know, academia was never the job that I thought I've got to have yeah. and I've got to do or anything like that. Um, and then my, my other academic job was at, was at Bradford and Ilkley Community College before I then moved to Leeds Met. It's always been about, well, a job came up, I thought I could do it, I thought, let me apply. I got the job, I've been doing it for a long time. So it's been a bit like that for me. I never, you know, I mean, I think I'm a bit of an, not accidental, but maybe incidental academic, really. You know, opportunities came up and I took them. How did you get your foothold into academia then? Because mm. obviously we've established that in many ways, I guess it was kind of accidental. Mm. But some aspect of it would have been design. Mm. And you are pretty humble, so I would expect you to say <laughs> that. Um, but some, some part of it, um, if, you'll let, if you'll let me kind of interject, well, that there must be, at some point, something must have switched on from kind of, you know, Bradford to Ilkley College yeah. to going into academia. What yeah. happened? I think, I think what, what really happened was my continued involvement in, like, black activism and community politics. Because at the same time as as being like uh, at Leeds Met and at Bradford and Ilka Community College, I was also involved in setting up different community groups uh, around black issues. One of them that I think was quite fundamental in me thinking, well, um, maybe I, I need to do a lot more research around you know, black people's lives in the UK was uh, setting up Black Communities AIDS team in Leeds with some other black women and keeping that going for like about four years before we got funding mm. and then keeping it going for another maybe five, six years until it was absorbed by the Strategic Health Authority. We thought we'd, we'd done that project from beginning to end and got what we wanted. It was institutionalised, right? And I thought at the time we did a lot of research around like black people and health in West Yorkshire and, and that made me think we'd, we had to do that, we had to do that research and set up that organisation because there was nothing, yeah. you know, we just were never catered for, not thought about. And I thought, well, it's the same in academic life if you, if you think about it, you know. Very often when I was an undergraduate student, I'd be reading things that I thought, well, that's not us. Like, you know, black people are more criminal than others, you know, the usual things, we've got more mental illness, you know, we're, we're more likely to be muggers, all that kind of stuff. And I'd be thinking, well, that doesn't describe me and it doesn't describe anybody I know and it doesn't describe the community I know either. So it was, it was more driven by activism, I suppose, in a way. It comes from that and, and, and thinking to myself, well, you can be an academic and an activist at the same time. The two things aren't separate, yeah. right? You, they kind of feed each other. So somebody whose work helped me to think about that as well was Stuart Hall, because he always talked about cultural studies as being um, an enterprise which linked community and academia. You know, community politics became the academic thing to study and, and that kind of thing, and, and also the other way around. So, um, yeah, that's, that's probably how it kind of started, thinking... I can't see us in these theories that people have generated 
And like, where did they get that from? Because I don't recognize that. That's not come from any data they got from a black person. They probably just sat in their room and wrote it. You know what I mean? So it was about dissatisfaction with the theory that was there, really. Once you kind of traverse all of that mm. and you've kind of looked at the landscape and you've thought, I know my mission, I know yeah. what I want to do, I know how I want to become a scholar activist, I effectively know how I want to use my platform, my privilege, my mm. research to change the world that I live in. Mm. You reside in that space. Mm. What then happens? Because obviously... There is a part of it that is not so glamorous and one could argue that the less glamorous side has probably in many ways superseded all the good that someone as exceptional as yourself has done because mm. you're having to negate that mm. on a daily basis whilst trying to manage to facilitate or mobilise mm. a particular gender and racial yeah. or sexual or any intersectional yeah. inequality yeah, yeah so what does that bit look like because yeah your story is particularly interesting i have been disappointed of course but but it's not it's not even disappointment because i can't be disappointed in a system that wasn't set up for me mm. right i was i was never meant to succeed yeah i was always supposed to be at the bottom of of the like academic ladder and you know what it's like, Jason. As a black person, you have to work ten times as hard as white people to yeah. just get one increment or something like that. Mm. But I think what really helped me to deal with all of that negativity that I was getting from uh, white colleagues and from white institutions in general was my black students. Very few and far between my black students. Yeah. But when I had black students in the room, it was like they just gave me an incredible light and I could see, you know, this is my mission. I, not a mission, but, you know, this is what, this is what I want to do. I want to enable... Calling, yeah. Yeah, I want to enable people to see, like, academia as something that they can also enter. You know, it's hard work mm. and it's full of a lot of really horrible experiences that we can all share. For me, it was important for me to be there to say to an undergraduate, yeah, you can do an MA, have you ever thought about that? Mm. And invariably, by the time they came to me in year three, nobody had ever told them that before. Or to say to an MA student, yeah, you can do a PhD. Nobody else had ever told them that before either. And, and they'd sit and look at me and say, are you sure? Yeah, I'm completely positive. You know what I mean? So for me to, to be able to like generate a community of younger researchers that are there after I leave, because I'm, you know, I'm not going to be there forever, but that are there occupying that space and creating a community for themselves is just a fantastic thing. I feel really honoured to have been able to do just that one thing, mm -hmm. you know, to have been able to graduate so far, like um, 18, 19 PhD students, you know, mm -hmm. fantastic. Most of them also black people and people of colour, also people from different parts of the world. So that, that's been great. That's, that's supported me kind of intellectually and spiritually. But what's also supported me spiritually as well and made me just continue even in some very adverse situations, not just my family, but all my friends, but like a community of scholars outside of my own institution. Mm -hmm. And whenever I speak to like um, younger colleagues, I always say to them, you know, you can't look inside your department or inside your university necessarily for the support you need 
or for the kind of recognition that you deserve because you won't get it from there. Mm. You'll get it from outside though, right? So always think of your audience as being people outside, whether that's people from the community who read like a blog you've written or some academic who reads what you write in China. Mm. You know, that, that's, that's the community that you should be dealing with, not people inside. I'm not saying that you can't find you know, colleagues that are supportive. Of course you can find colleagues that are supportive. But one of the things that never ceases to amaze me is how it is that, like, desire for white recognition drives a lot of white bonding, which then excludes a lot of us. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just white people that engage in this, but unfortunately some of us engage in that as well, yeah. right? And, and, and then that, that just creates institutions which then remain very impervious to us in any way you know, and want to kind of push us out as much as possible. So for me, it's always been about finding support structures that are not in that department or that university outside and even internationally as well, yeah. you know, because like what's interested me about my work is before my work was recognised in the UK by my black colleagues, mm. it was recognised outside of the UK in Brazil the United States, the Caribbean and, and South Africa much you, before. Do you remember a point in time where that was the case? So when was yeah. the first time you recognised that people recognised my work? Yeah. But that recognition came outside of the UK yeah. first. Can you pinpoint a time like it was 10, 20 years ago? 2007, right. I mean, um, yeah, that was, I would say, the first time. Uh, and it was an invitation to Brazil that spurred that, you see, right? Mm. I, feel, I don't even feel guilty, I was going to say it's bad for me to say I feel guilty, but I don't feel any of those things. I think it's sad for me to have to say that an academy that I spent nearly 40 years in has never been my intellectual home, has never mm. been somewhere that I, I felt that I really was being recognised or anything like that. It's always been a location for me of... Um, indifference to who I was and what I was bringing to, in, to the intellectual enterprise but also some place that was very prepared to cut my work, my work with the students my writing, my networks, you know, that was theirs simply because I had signed my name on the contract that said yeah I'll take this job What are your thoughts on how black academics, particularly in the UK as it's such a small community mm. what are your thoughts on how they support each other if they do do it, if mm. they don't do it if they could do it more but I think we need to do it more I've never had like a mentor mm. I've never had a mentor, never not even to this point now no, I have one now in Canada oh, right, okay. right, I have one now in Canada but I've mm. never had a mentor throughout my academic life Right. which is interesting isn't it because there's the universities say they have mentoring schemes and all this mm. kind of stuff and you should have a mentor I don't remember being assigned one, mm. right? And I also, if I had been assigned one, I would have had to check them out very carefully because, you know, you're supposed to trust your mentor mm. that they have your well-being at heart oh, yeah. and your career progression. But there are many people I would never trust with myself in that way, mm. you know what I mean? So, so maybe for me, I wouldn't have been a good mentee, but I was never offered one, right? Yeah. One of the things I think we need to do as um, a, a community of black academics is to support each other on many levels, right? Whether that is to um, be informal mentors for people. people. People ask you questions, don't they? Like, send you an email and they ask you a question. You can answer it. Don't just leave it in your inbox. Answer that, that query, right? People say things to you like, I want to find out if you think this is good to, to publish somewhere or the other. It might take you a while to read it, but read it and comment because you know, it takes a lot for people to approach you, especially somebody they don't know, to ask to do something like that. So what do you think is the difference in the 
Professor Shirley Ann Tate yeah. looking at it like that, yeah. and potentially other professors of colour mm. for the t- for the for the context of this discussion, yeah. sometimes not looking at things like that. Yeah. Um, well, I, f- I find it kind of sad that they wouldn't do that because for me, that's part of the political work we have to do. Yeah. You know, we have to enable other black colleagues to to take up the journey that we are we are travelling ourselves, right? So, so for me. If, if I help white students, because we have to, too, mm. I must be able to help black students, right? Mm. I cannot leave them at the side of the road. Why would I do that? In a similar way, for me, I'm there. If I'm mentoring like a young white colleague, why am I not going to mentor a young black colleague as well, yeah. right? Seriously? So I would, I would have to say to, um, to those uh, professor colleagues of mine that what they need to think about is to think about it as broader than them and their career progression and their status in the hierarchy. You know, be, being there is it's a privileged position. That's true. But, you know, you can share it with other people and nothing, you won't be robbed of anything. Yeah. Right? You will gain a lot from doing that. And what do you say to the, the other side of the argument could be, you know, there isn't an obligation on white academics or white professors to have to do this work. So mm-hmm. why should black academics have to, by proxy, have to do it effectively because they're black? Yeah, I get that too. I understand. We don't, we don't get paid for it. But that's not my point. My point is, you know, things that we do as academics are not apolitical. They are political. The choices we make about what we put in our curriculum, that's political. The choices we also make about, you know, help enabling, not even helping, enabling yeah. other black uh, colleagues to progress, also a political choice. So for me to kind of have this moan about, well, you know, we're not paid for it, yeah, okay, you can moan about it. But the point is, I think it's not an obligation, it's a responsibility, you know, to do that. And it's not work either, it's a pleasure, right? Yeah. And in a way, very early on in my academic career in the UK, I had two people who kept me in education. I, told, I said their names the other day, Ranjita Aurora and Raminda Singh. And if it hadn't been for them, I wouldn't be here today, I know that. They were instrumental in making me complete my undergraduate degree. And all they did was just sit and listen to me speak about how I was feeling on any particular day. That's not work. No. Not That's enough. just being human, right? Um, and funnily enough, I guess the individualism and the egocentric nature of academia mm. doesn't actually facilitate that. No. Um, which it is a real sound. shame. It does um, Just kind of thinking about um, your career, Sherry. So you've just recently uh, reduced the number of black female <laughs> academics by uh, leaving us um, in the UK to go to University of Alberta. What is it now? 26? Gone down to 27. Oh, right. Totally yeah. shame. So, um, so thanks for that, uh, Sherry. <laughs> What would you say, because obviously you also hold a position as a visiting professor at uh, yes. Nelson Mandela University. Yes. You also hold a position as a visiting professor at a University of Brasilia. Yeah. And you're obviously a professor um, at University of Alberta. Obviously, you have that international influence. Yes. But what you do have that is quite rare from a lot of those uh, black, that black, that black 27, 26 yeah. uh, female professors is that I guess you have a really kind of, you know, you've been to quite a lot of different places mm. in terms of geographically and mm. professionally. Mm. Um, what's the difference 
in terms of those institutions, what's what's different in terms of how they view aspects around race and racism yeah. um, in a higher education context yeah. in comparison to the UK? Because yeah. when I was fortunate enough to go with you to the University of Brasilia in June mm. of this year, mm. it was the first time in my life I really understood the term solidarity. Mm-hmm. It was the yeah. first time, um, I, you know, and it was like a visceral thing. You could yeah. feel it when you walked into the room. Yeah. You could feel it in terms of how empowered everybody was, particularly yeah. the black women, Brazilian women that yeah. were there. Yeah. Um, it was it was a life changing thing for me to observe mm-hmm. that. So, and that was only that's the first time in my life I've mm-hmm. observed that. Mm-hmm. Whereas you would have seen that several different times in all yeah. the several different hats you wear. Yeah. So, how's it different? One of the interesting things for me is like how much I've learned and how much I've grown through having these experiences like as a person I've, I've grown a lot I've grown a lot in confidence in fact as well as feeling like really valued and recognized so so for me to go to somewhere like Brazil or here is like what you felt you know you could be in a hall with like 500 people talking and you'd feel a complete embrace from the crowd don't get that very often. No. Not in our line of work. It's normally the critique, 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 yeah. isn't it, right? Depending on your audience. Um, so I, th- I think for me, um, the thing that all those kinds of different places share is like a commitment to social justice transformation. The, the, the spaces I occupy in those mm. contexts at any rate, right? Otherwise they wouldn't be there and they, would, they wouldn't have read my work and and thought it interesting or anything like that, or meaningful. Um, so I think I'm really honoured to have been able to have my work read in those different spheres and found to be like really relevant to the local context as well, you know, in terms of what people are trying to, to change and, and to become in a way, so yeah. That's fantastic. Because um, I still see myself as that girl from Sligerville, Jamaica, you know that, don't you? Even though know, I'm really old. I, know, I, know. <laughs> I still see myself as her. Shirley, do you have a defining crown and glory moment? Mm-hmm. It's quite ironic talking to you about that and using an imperialistic term. Yeah. But um, do you have like a moment in your career when you look back on it? Because really, you've been at the top of the mountain for probably a decade now, so quite mm. a long time. Is there a particular moment you look back on and you think, do you know what, Shirley Ann, you know, from a girl from Jamaica that came over as a teenager, I haven't actually done too badly. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me see. I've thought that several times, actually, because, you know, I think yeah, when you live a long life, things happen and you go, oh, look, look at that, yeah. you know. Um... But I think, if I'm to be truthful, it was when my PhD student, Carol Marie Webster, passed. I thought, wow, I've got a PhD student, she's a black woman from Jamaica, she did a, you yeah. know, ju- something Jamaican as her topic as yeah. well, and she's got a PhD from a, from a Russell Group University mm. on, on that. So I think that, that was one, that was a really important one for me, yeah. Because it meant to me that, like, you know, Jamaican knowledge is were being incorporated into the English kind of epistem, right? So that was good. And I think another point was was when I was offered two professorships in one year. Yeah. A highlight for me, of course. How, how, do, your, how do your children feel about it? Do, do people around um, you ever think, that's, that's Shirley Ann Tate, she's not only my friend, she's a professor. Do people... Does that have yeah. any impact on people well, around you? My, my dearest friend, Nahid, she's my longest friend in the UK, right? Um, 
When I told her I'd got the professorship in, in South Africa, we were in her kitchen because she always cooks for me and stuff, and we were in her kitchen, and we, she was crying, she just burst out crying, and said, my God, at last, you so deserve it. So we both started crying then as well. And she was like, you know, finally, finally, you've got one. And, and these people here, they just don't know what they're doing, you know, like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think well, and my family are enormously proud of me too, of course. My... My my children, you know, are very proud of their mom, even though they know that I'm just, you know, I'm still just their mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you're always that too. But they also recognize the enormous amount of work and dedication I've put in and the amount of sacrifices I've had to make over the years just to even just earn a living, not even be promoted, just earn a living. So, you know, they, they see that. That's really interesting. And... One of the things that I'm really intrigued by is um, inside academia, outside academia. Mm. Who um, who inspires you? Ah, well, um, my long-term inspiration has been Stuart Hall's work, mm. and I'll tell you a story about that. Fellow Jamaican, yeah, fellow mm. Jamaican Stuart Hall. Um, when he when he was the outgoing president of the BSA, I was at the BSA conference. I think that might have been the last time I went, actually. Mm. I remember the penultimate time. And, you know, he gave his speech. And, and then he came, I was looking at him the whole time and he came off the platform and he stood like there next to me and he was smiling at me like this. And I just couldn't, I just kept smiling. I just could not say, my God, I love your work. It just could not come out of my mouth. Yeah. But yeah, Stuart Hall's work, very inspirational and continues to be like inspirational for me. And um, black feminists. So Toni Morrison died yeah. recently. Audre Lorde as well is already dead. So rest them. Um, also very very important. Franz Fanon, yeah. who I read when I was either twelve or fourteen. I can't remember yeah. my age now. And I think that book for me, Black Skins, White Masks, yeah. kind of. My, my cousin Ludlow lent me that book. He said, you've got to read it. He was at the University of West Indies at the time. He said, just read this so you can understand how colonialism worked, basically, and see the society that we live in, you know. Mm. And it really, it really had a massive impact on me. And I think it's, it's, it's certainly, from that moment, it, it enabled me to see the world in a really very specific way. Because remember, I read that when I was, say, 12. So I was born in 1956. So it was just a bit after independence, you know, not, not long You need into, to ask Shirley to see her passport. Yes. <laughs> yes. 1956. You can see her, it's not believable. Yeah. I've been very fortunate to have people who've done that body of work that I can kind of gain from. And I suppose bringing it right up to the present, um, I guess you've you've kind of lived through several waves of academia in mm. in, in what is a forty year stretch, quite mm. unbelievably. Yeah. Um, and to still be current, still be relevant, still be able to identify with you know continuing new generations. Mm. What are your thoughts on the upcoming generation, the upcoming climate? Mm. Um, I think the struggle is real. That's what my grand, my little grand, one of my little grandsons says. Yeah. He says the struggle is real. It's not changed. It's just mm. changed shape. Yeah. Unfortunately, the thing for me, it's like you know, you know, the the right wing is there. Yeah. It's there, and we have to recognise it, and we have to recognise that it's global, that it's organised, it's well financed, and we also have to recognise that people who we never thought might be in that group of people they're there yeah. you know and and their aim is to like 
I don't want to talk about like conspiracy theories or anything like that because I don't. I think it's very open. Yeah. Is to just um, you know squash any protest of any sort, either squash it or assimilate it, appropriate it. So then it takes all of the the protest out, as Stuart Hall told yeah. us already, right? So, so um, it's a about Sindavan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like you know, yeah, you have to you have to figure out new new and more complicated ways of navigating the system because you know as as we know and as Charles Mills has told us as well mm. that's another person's work is great um you know we're not we're now in a context in which like white people look at us and say you're being racist to me right so in a way you know you have to become very sophisticated in terms of how you you kind of define racism mm. and look at look at its operation as well yeah. right um so and then kind of how you choose to address it has also got to be very nuanced as well. So I think the times that are coming are going to be quite difficult, quite difficult for young black academics, mm. especially ones who have like um, like a so- social justice transformation kind of headset or sensibility, you know, and, and who also think about what they need to do to form community as black scholars. It's going to be very challenging. Moving forward, what what would a what would a perfect utopia? What would a, what would a perfect higher education system? So let's work off the oh. mantra that the the whole higher education establishment globally mm. needs mm-hmm. dismantling because oh, fundamentally yeah. it's been built yeah. through the eyes of a British yeah. colonial framework. Absolutely. Mm. Let's just let's just reimagine it. There's a lot of what yeah. we've been doing this week, this past week in South Africa has been reimagining Re-imagine. what this space could look like. What, what would a perfect higher education model look like? And mm. I suppose 40 years of your work has been in the UK, so let's start mm. with the UK. Well, in the UK, right, what for me would be absolutely perfect is if we just had better outcomes for black students and students of colour than they've got at the minute. Because, as you know, what the degree outcomes that they have don't reflect their, 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 yeah. Yeah, don't reflect their talent, right? So that must mean that something really bad is happening in our universities. So we have to think about what is it that, that stops students from really excelling, all students, because this would impact everybody as well. Yeah. Not just black people or people of colour, everybody would benefit from any yeah. change that was made, right? And, um, and so, you know, it's like us as academics, what do we do to those students in the classroom to make them feel stupid or to make them feel like they can't do anything, they can't do it right? What kind of support systems do we need to put in place to ensure that everybody succeeds, right? I mean, um, it's not just about curriculum change either. It's about how we interact with people. Hmm? How we see things in the classroom, like, you know, white students sitting in a bunch there and black students sitting in a bunch there because white students won't talk to black students. So, of course, why would black students go sit in that bunch? So it's about what do we do with that kind of dynamic in the classroom? Do we let, let it carry on? Do we kind of support white students? Do we turn black students into white people's teachers the minute that we talk about racism, you know what I mean? And do we have discussions about racism and how it operates, or do we shut it down immediately when it arises because it's an uncomfortable topic that we really shouldn't be talking about, you know, kind of like religion or something. So we have to think about ways ways to, new approaches to pedagogy as teachers which are anti-racist but also you know intersectionally anti-racist you know what I mean right so 
don't know how to do that. I'm still thinking about how to do something like that as well. For those colleagues, and there are many, who think that the only theory continues to be broadly white European, they need to think again, I would say, you know, they need to be re-educated into thinking about what is knowledge, what is theory, and where it can come from, mm. right? Because it didn't all come from Germany or France or England, of course not, mm. no, right? And there are emerging theories all across the world which are really interesting, but one of the problems that we have in the UK is that, you know, many of us are monolingual. Mm. You know, we can't read Spanish, we can't read anything that's not written in English. So that closes down our possibilities. Mm. But we never recognize it as a closing down of possibilities because we're so, so like, you know, monocultural, monolingual and, and see Europe as the center, well, the English-speaking Europe as the center of everything. That is never problematized, right? Um, I think, of course, it's the usual stuff. You know, we need, we need more black academics. But we also have to ensure that they have an environment which they can work in and be productive and not feel kind of completely mauled by it yeah. every time they're going through the gates of the institution. So what do we need to do to ensure that that happens? So it's kind of like a whole cultural change that we need to have, of course. That's really very important to change the culture of the institution, to change how it's managed, to change how people are... Um, promoted within it, to change how people access it, um, to change people's experiences in it, which is like massive. It's a massive, mm. massive kind of project. But that is what it will take. And unfortunately, we have a whole generation of scholars that need to leave before some of this can happen. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, so I don't know. I don't think it's, it's, not, it's not an easy fix. And... You can't do it with short-term measures either. You have to have a really long-term approach to it and know that it's going to be hard the whole way through. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally understand. So mm. before we get to finishing my writer note and a bit of trivia, <laughs> because I think it's safe to say this might be your last go around the bend. Yeah, it is. At University of Alberta. Absolutely. So an absolute amazing body and legacy of work Thank you. that you've gifted to various generations, mine included, and the UK, just generally speaking, and academia, not black academia, just generally speaking, in the field of um, sociology, particularly cultural sociology. Mm. Um, What what would you like your lasting legacy to be? And that's not, I ask that question as in, I've asked that often, academics offer that without anyone asking them. And you have a very humble disposition, but I'm asking you. Well, what, you know, if someone's like, Professor Shirley Ann Tate, what would you like your lasting legacy to be? Because as I said, I think for those in the know, it's safe to say that, you know, Canada, University of Alberta in Canada will be your last gig yeah, um, in terms of is. formal gig, um, besides the visiting professorships and the emeritus stuff. Mm-hmm. So what would you like your lasting legacy to be? <laughs> it's a really hard question because I haven't even thought about anything I do as, you know, being about a legacy. I think... If I were to say what I would want my lasting legacy to be, it would be that there are groups of black academics and academics of colour who feel kind of enabled to enter the world of academia and see themselves as as good as anybody else. Because it took me a really long time to get to that position. Mm -hmm. But I want people to already be at that 
position the minute they go through the doors. So I think that would be what I would like my lasting legacy to be. So like the work I've done on institutional racism in universities has been very much to try to prise apart how it works at very specific levels. So to enable maybe people to have a particular lens on universities when they see it happening, they'll know what it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think maybe maybe that would be my lasting legacy. Yeah. That's fantastic. And um, to end with a bit of useless trivia, which I've been trying to make up off the top of my head since we started this uh, podcast. You don't know any trivia, do you? Um, any trivia? It's, it's questions just to ask you. All you have to do is just say one or the other. Okay, so I think the first one that came to my mind was uh, Bob Marley or Jimmy Cliff. Bob Marley. Jimmy Cliff for some things, but Bob Marley for the, the poetry, the inspiration, the politics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I grew up with him. Lamb or curry goat? Oh, curry goat, don't okay. eat lamb. I'm Jamaican, okay. don't eat lamb. Um, the Fosters or Desmonds? Oh, now this is a good one, isn't it? Oh my god. Okay, Desmonds then. I'll Desmonds. just plump for the Desmonds. Okay, yeah. Chinese neighbours, um, yeah. Western neighbours. Yeah. Um, Viv Richards uh? or Usain Bolt? Well, listen, I have to say both. Okay, okay go on. I'll say both. <laughs> Cricket and athletics. Yeah, yeah. I'm a Jamaican. You can't make a yeah, choose between those two, right? No, no, no. It's just that Viv Richards is from Grenada. I know where he's from. I don't care. It's um, part of the. It's part of the Windies team. I thought, I thought you'd lean towards no, the same boat. No, it's part Richard. of the Windies team. Okay. So yeah, yeah, that's true. Both of them. Both okay. Of them. Yeah. Um, and last one. Notting Hill Carnival or Leeds oh. Carnival? Well, I'd have to say Leeds, you know. Big up Leeds, yeah, go on, Yorkshire. I'd have to say that. Do you know what? Every person I've ever come in contact with from Leeds will always say, you know the first reiteration of Carnival started in Leeds? There you right? go, and yeah. And then London stole it. Yeah. But you should already know that London does everything bigger and better. And so, better, yeah. Um, about being from the boy from South London. But um, yeah. on a serious note... Um, Professor Shirley Ann Tate, um, for everything you have done, thank you so much. Like, um, mm. I really mean it when I say there's an absolute generation of scholars coming up that you have carried a huge labour and burden for, and in doing mm. so, it's all been on your shoulders amongst many others um, of your generation. And I think we all are hugely indebted to you mm. for what you've done, um, the knowledge you've left behind, and as with all great people, legacies live on don't they so yeah. you know the body stands in one place it passes on as we all do but then the work is the body of work and that's yeah. what people judge you on and I think the work that you've left for us and the frameworks the methodological cultural sociological mm. frameworks you've given us allow us really all to express ourselves in the way we want um Shirley and Tate um, aka Babyface so <laughs> thank you so so much um, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun <laughs> Oh, well, you know, I think I'm going to start signing my emails, A.K. Babyface. That's it. You heard it here. If any, from now on, if you email <laughs> Professor Shirley Ann Tate, dear, I can give you, this is how it works, dear Professor Shirley Ann Tate, A.K. Okay, Babyface, comma, I hope you're well. <laughs> and then you can make it. Exactly. Anyway, um, listen, that's enough nonsense from uh, Jason, but... Um, <laughs> It's been a pleasure doing this guest podcast with um, Shirley Ann. Shirley Ann, you're amazing. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.